You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. God is absolutely sovereign, meaning he rules and meaning he reigns in every way, that he can do whatever he wants and that he, in essence, controls everything. And that is so true. He does whatever he pleases. That's his right. We talked about how God even in Scripture at times broke his own rules of creation and nature that he established. The Bible testifies about how God caused the sun and the moon to appear to stand still. So something happens. What Could you imagine the uh, catastrophic cosmic collision, explosion, if the earth stops spinning, if the universe stops moving. And yet Bible, the Bible testifies that that happened when Joshua led the children of Israel. And then years later, there's a king by the name of Hezekiah who says, look, I know God can stop it. <laughs> I know God can do that. He's already done that. I have faith for that. But I want an absolute sign, and he tells the prophet, that I know that this is God. One way I'll know it's God is not only if God stops the sun and the moon, but if God turns it back 15 degrees. So you think about this. And the Bible says that the earth that is spinning, we know now at 1,000 miles per hour, went back 15 degrees on the dial. So the sun, so you think about the incredibleness of that. The only way that you can believe that that's possible is if you believe in a God that is absolutely omniscient, that is absolute, or absolutely sovereign, rather, that, has, that can do that without the whole cosmos falling apart. Well, of course, God is absolutely sovereign. That's what makes him God. That is what makes him a deity. Um, people who don't believe in God say, well, no, but no, th- that would never happen. Oh, really? It would never happen. So it would absolutely never happen. Well... It would never happen, but if it ever happened, whoever could do that would have to be God. Well, that's the whole point we're making, is that God is able to do that. That's his ability. And of course, no man can stand up and say there's no God because no man can claim to have infinite knowledge of all time, matter, and space, and eternity. And so nobody can say that. There's no way that you can say that. The only way that you can say there is no God is if you were God yourself, right? Is that Follow me, stay with me. And you had all knowledge, then you could say, you wouldn't say there's no God because you would be God, right? So what you would say is, there's no God beside me. See, God is the only one that can say that because he's God all by himself, and so he's absolutely sovereign. So... Let's look at this. God is absolutely sovereign. We stopped here. Now, the last thing we did was we looked at Jesus was given the ascription of a sovereign God when, the same application, when the Bible says that he comes onto the shore, and we were at Matthew 8, 27. Uh, Matthew 8, 27, I think it was. Yeah, Matthew 8, 27. It's okay. I added, I added a bunch of slides there. So Matthew 8.27. And Matthew 8.27 basically says, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And so they were ascribing to Jesus Christ 
the same attribute that they were giving to God. So now let's go a little bit further. Now the first thing that I want to point out tonight and to highlight and talk about for just a moment is this. Satan has certain power in this earth. But the only power that he has is the power that God allows him or permits him to have. Okay? Satan is not sovereign. I think this is, this is a revelation that we need to get as well. The fact that God is sovereign, the enemy is not sovereign. So we blame a lot of things on the devil sometimes, and we give the devil way too much credit, way too much power, way too much authority. Well, the devil made me do this, or the devil's making me do this, or the devil's making me do that. The devil has no power over us except the power that we leverage him to have over us. Amen? And so Satan is not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. And we make a mistake when we incorrectly apply a divine attribute upon the enemy of God. Satan's power, amen, there is dominions, there is strongholds, there are things that are at work in the world, but he has no power over you. He has no power over you when you are a submitted being to God, eternal God sovereign. So if I am submitted to the Lord, if I'm following after the Lord, there's no way the enemy can have any control over me. The only way he could have influence or rule over me, let's say, is when we have rejected God, the ideas of God, the entity of God, the commandment of God, the word of God, and we put ourselves beyond the provision of the word and the protection and the commandments of the Lord. And then we yield ourselves, we set ourselves in a place where now we are vulnerable. Okay? We're vulnerable. And so we position ourselves outside of the Word of God, the plan of God, and now we, we become vulnerable in that, in that realm. When I was growing up, Mom wouldn't let me ride my bike when I was a certain age. She wouldn't let me ride my bike where I could not see the house. And then as I got older, I couldn't ride my bike past the block. I had to stay within the block, which meant I had to be close enough that if she stepped out the back door or the front door, and yelled, Andrew, I could hear her, and I had to come home. That was how close I had to be. And of course, I had to get older before I could go farther and things like that. And <clears throat> by the time I was 15 years old, I was riding my bike all over the metropolitan area of Indianapolis, and uh, it, was, it was quite fun. I can't believe that my mother actually let me do that. And uh, so it was quite fun. And uh, But... You, mom did not want me to be outside the realm of vulnerability. She wanted me to stay there. She wanted me to stay in that protection. So it is with the Lord. God's saying, look, you can, you can have everything that you want right here. You stay right here and your protection. But when you choose to go beyond that, when you choose to forsake that, you put yourself in a place of vulnerability. How many of us could testify that a lot of the troubles that we have in our life are not because necessarily something happened to us or because um, uh, the devil did it to us as much as sometimes we put ourselves in positions 
where we make, we leave ourselves vulnerable. Is that all right? We leave ourselves vulnerable. Vulnerable to temptation. Vulnerable to fears and doubts and anxieties. Whereas that's not God's will. That's not God's design for us. And so we can give, we can give to Satan power. You can read the story of Job, and I don't have to spend too much time on this. But Job comes, and Job said to God, God actually brought Job into the conversation, and he said, there's this interesting dialogue in, in, in the celestial heavens between God and Satan, and they had this council, this conference, whatever it was. And God says to Satan, he says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan basically says, well, Lord, there's no way I can touch him. Yeah, you've got such a hedge around him. And he says, that's right. Okay, I'll take down this hedge. I'll, I'll give you this perimeter of his life. Comes back. Have you considered my servant Job? He's still serving me. He's still loving. He is still choosing me. You see, we'll talk about this later on, but there's something beautiful about free will. The Bible says that he says, I am God. I create, uh, I create light and I create darkness. And he, the Bible says, I create good and I create evil. Well, the moment he defined what good was, was the moment he allowed something other than good to exist. Does that make sense? And we're talking about these unique attributes of God. And when we get down to the end, we'll understand. The moment God says, I am holy, He defines holy, is the moment that He causes there to be an allowability for something not holy. Does that make sense? I can't know what light is if, I, if there's not the existence of darkness. It just is. But, but now when He defines that, it may, so He defined Himself as good and righteous, and now that creates the ability for there to be unrighteousness. He didn't create evil in the sense that he said, I set evil to play its part and to do its deed. No, he created evil in the sense that he defined what was good, and so that meant there had to be not good, the ability for not good. Are you with me? Okay, and so in that sense, he, he did define what was evil, and so in that sense, he, he allowed it to be by his self-definition. And so, so God... His whole purpose was He creates us so that we could know Him. And I'm getting ahead of myself in this series, but, but this would be a follow-up. But why did God create us? Well, if God is God eternal, all by Himself, righteous, holy, perfect, what good is it? Because God everything is the equivalent of God nothing. And so, are you with me? So God creates, and this, all this is naturally going to do is going to glorify Him and give glory back to Him. But He creates us, not as robots, not as machines that we have to go around saying, holy, holy, holy. No, He creates us with our own ability to reason, our own ability to know, and our own free will to choose Him or to reject Him. And so when Satan comes around... Satan obviously lost out because he, he, got, he thought, well, I'll be like God. I'll, I'll be like God. He got pride in him. He, he disengaged himself, disenfranchised himself with God. said, who do you think you are? I, I can be just as good as you. Oh, no, you can't. And so Satan's out there, well, watch me. I'm going I'm to wreak all this havoc and everything. And so here God is saying, have you considered my servant Job? 
You know what he's saying to Satan? Look, there's a man down there that is choosing me on his own free will. Well, God, you're sovereign. I can't touch him. Okay. We'll give, him, we'll give you this perimeter in his life. And he shows back up and says, hey, have you, considered, have you seen my servant Job lately? He's still serving me. Well, God, that's because I can't touch his body. Okay. I'll let you touch his body, his bones, but I will not let you take his life. And so this comes on, and at the end, what happens? Job is still serving God. (laughs) Not because he's not in pain, not because he's not in discomfort, not because he's not wishing that that would pass from him, because he says, maybe it would have been better if I would have never been born. But Job had a revelation of who God was. And when he knew who God was, he said, it does not matter what. There are no other options but to love and to serve God. And I know Job had a hope in the resurrection. He said, though the skin worms destroy this flesh, yet in my body someday I shall see God. And you know what? That just irritated Satan to the max. You know what irritates Satan is when you're still here? After 50 years of storms, after 40 years of heartbreak, after 30 years of trials, after 20 years of temptation, and you're still here, and nobody made you be here, and nobody said, hey, you got to do this or hold a gun to your head. You just came all by yourself. Dandeed wrote a song. We used to love it as kids. I choose to be a Christian. Nobody's holding a gun to my head. This is how I want to live. See, that's the thing that fools people. You mean you choose to go to church? Absolutely. You know why? Because I've got a revelation of who God is. I've got a revelation that He's sovereign. <laughs> and if, he, if, I'm in, if I'm following after Him, He's sovereign. Nothing else matters and nothing else can touch me. And what a glorious faith that is to be able to live with that understanding, with that mindset. And so God is absolutely sovereign. So Satan has no authority over you. That's something that we need to understand. So God in his absolute sovereignty, all right, is not affected when the enemy has power, let's say, power, prince and power of the air, or he has certain powers over certain aspects of people. People yield themselves to them, demonic possession, let's say. That's, that would be the extreme, the ultimate. The Bible talks about The final days of Judas, the Bible says that Satan entered into Judas. He was already a betrayer, but Satan entered into Judas. That would be the final place where Satan has ultimate power over you, but that does not happen by happenstance. You have to do a whole, there's a whole lot of red flags, there's a whole lot of stop signs you have to blow through before you get to that place, but that does not change God's sovereignty. So now let's look at this. This is, this is a little confusing sometimes, I think, for some people when they don't think this all the way through. But God's sovereignty is absolute. God's sovereignty, He's absolute sovereignty, and it affects, all it affects when the devil has power is the security and realm of the living of, living of the one who foolishly, foolishly refuses to submit to God. So when you're outside that parameter and you decide, I'm not going to submit to God, now you, you are under the influence, the sovereignty of the enemy because you've displaced yourself from God. But if those who will submit to the grace of God, as Scripture says, are predestined to His glory, 
then it must be equally true that those who will not submit to the grace of God must be predestined to his judgment or his destruction, where that, where that falls. And now we come to this inter- interesting thing. If God rules and God controls everything, um, why is there evil in the world? Well, we talked about that a little bit. And then what about the issue of predestination? The Bible talks about predestination, that people are predestined. You are predestined to win, predestined to win, to overcome in Christ. And the mistake happens when we make predestination individual. And there are churches that teach that predestination is individual. Calvin taught this. And so a lot of your Calvinistic churches would ascribe to this philosophy and this theology. They don't always broadcast it as much because they want anybody to come into their church and they want to grow a church. But if you have a theology that already says, well, who's going to be saved is going to be saved and who's going to be lost is going to be lost, then you almost have this mindset of why, why are we out here doing all the work? If they're predestined, it's going to happen. Why, why are we doing all this work? Why are we doing all this labor? And so they ascribe predestination to individuals. So that means that you are predestined, not, not in a category, but you as an individual, as Mr. Stephen Duff, are predestined to whatever. Well, the problem that plays with your mind is what happens if I'm not predestined to win? If I'm not predestined to win, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm not going to win. But the Bible does not teach that. It doesn't talk about that individual predestination. You're predestined. How are you predestined? Here's how you're predestined. If you will submit to God, you're predestined to win. It's a categorical predestination. You follow after God, you cannot fail. But if you reject God and you don't submit to God, you're predestined to fail. You're bound to fail. It's just a matter of time before things fall apart. You may succeed by the world's definition and materialistic standards, but you will fail spiritually so miserably. It doesn't matter what happens because there's no other way outside of God, around Christ, around the cross. There's no other way except through the Word of God. Amen? It is an exclusive gospel and a doctrine. And so the categories of predestination are not individual, but they are corporate. They are category groups. So how do you know this? Well, I know this because predestination, the theology that claims itself as predestination says... That certain people are predestined to fail. So then they would say, Judas was predestined to fail. Let's say, let's use Judas because he's an easy one to use, right? He betrayed Christ. I mean, how bad do you have to be to betray the Messiah, to be right there? Well, it happens every day. But the Bible prophesied that there would be one who would betray him. But the Bible does not name who would betray him. There would be one who would betray him. There's going to be one that's going to resist him. And God knew from the very beginning that if he created man and gave him free will, that there would be some that would choose not to love him. God knew that. But he was willing to take the risk because he was still willing to reveal himself to those who would love him and those who would serve him and those that would enjoy the blessings of all the things that he would provide for them in salvation. 
And here's what it says, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, and I don't know if I put that verse there, it's there. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but look at this, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, in his infinite knowledge, he knew that there would be some that would refuse him, but he was not willing that they would refuse him. And he made a way that was completely inclusive. No one has ever been excluded from the gospel of Jesus Christ, from the power of the gospel, from the effects, amen, of the cross, No one has been without the chance for grace and deliverance and salvation. That's one of the most beautiful things that we celebrate in the church. That there is no thing that you could ever do that would disqualify you from the mercy and the grace and the love of God if you so would choose to turn to the Lord and invite God into your life. He says he's not willing that any should perish. If he was willing that one would perish, how can there be predestination if he's not willing that any should perish? How could God create you and say, okay, this one's going to fail, this one's going to win, this one's going to lose, this one's going to be saved eternally, this one's going to be in eternal damnation. How could God do that if he was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? And we'll get to the final attribute is going to talk about and illustrate this even a little bit more. but So we are not predestined. Even though God's sovereign and He rules, He does not rule over our um, day-to-day decisions. Okay, God did not command me today to do whatever. God did not command. He gives us that ability. But He does rule and He does reign. And when we step outside of the rule of God, God has the ability to use that to His advantage. And so the Bible talks about that. You can look in Exodus where he talks about um, Pharaoh who turned against the Lord. Anybody remember that? And the Bible talks about how he hardened his heart. God was not predestined. If you read that, you could think, oh, wow, God was predetermining that Pharaoh was going to be a bad guy and a mean man. No, he was taking somebody who was outside of his submission. Pharaoh himself declared himself to be a god. Right? By his own Egyptian theologies of those days. Pharaoh saying, I'm a God. God's saying, no, you're not God. I'm God. No, I'm God. Okay, I'm going to use this man, and I'm going to show all the world how I am God, and I can take away the poorest people in his kingdom, the ones that he puts under power and reign, and I can liberate them, and I can bless them, and I can make of them a great people. And so God says, you're out there? All right, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm, I'm going to keep sending these plagues. And if he's resolute in his idea and saying, I'm still God, I'm still God, every plague, it's just going to make him more and more, get more bitter and more hard and more bitter and more hard. Any moment, at what, I mean, at what point would have you thought, you would have thought, I mean, at what point would have you said, okay, I'm not God. There's got to be a bigger God than me. I mean, 10 plagues. And finally he says, 
He doesn't even say, okay, the Lord's God. He says, okay, get out of here. Just get out of here. And he said, no, no, no. I'm going to go get them back here. They're coming back. Hello? You just had 10 horrible plagues happen. And then all of a sudden, your whole army and you drown in the middle of the sea. I bet you, I don't know. But I wonder what his last thought would have been. I don't know, but maybe it was, maybe I'm not God. <laughs> have you ever, I, I, I'm being humorous a little bit, but have you ever thought about that? The, the foolishness that decries and says, no, I'm God, no, I'm God, no, I'm God. And so when you read in Exodus, the Bible says the Lord hardened his heart. Well, he keeps doing all these plagues. So he's positioned and postured himself outside of God. So God was not making him in some predestined kind of way. All right, so let's move on. Um, while God is absolutely sovereign, we have to be careful that we do not make the mistake to let his sovereignty become an excuse for blaming God for all the ills of society. Well, God did this. Well, God, he's a mean God. Have you ever heard people say that? He's a mean God because there's children that are starving wherever. You pick your country. He's a mean God because this is happening or that is happening. No, that had nothing to do with God. When God created the world, the Bible talks about that. It was pleasant. It was perfect. It was wonderful. What causes all of the diseases, what causes all of the stuff, it's not God that sets one man out to murder another. It's not God that causes one person to dominate over another person. Many, many times, not always, but many times, countries of dire poverty cannot be helped because... There's such corruption. You remember the, the sad tragedy, the horrible earthquake that took place in Haiti? And so, horrible thing, and we're sending all these supplies down there, and we're sending this stuff, and I, I was talking to our missionaries that went there, that drove there. And they said, most of our stuff got stolen before we could get it down there. Now, thank God we live in America. We're going to fill up a semi-trailer. It's going to make its way down there. People are going to show up to freely give away stuff that they don't have to other people to help them in need. By the thousands, bottle of water was flown into Haiti. And they said at any given time you could walk through the airports and the hallways in the airports and the terminals, terminals were piled with bottles of water. And the people that were in control and in charge were feeding all of their family and all of their friends with bottles of water while children and orphans were starving to death. They were filling up their trucks. Our missionaries were filling up their trucks. And they were driving across the border of the Dominican Republic. We flew the stuff in the Dominican and we were driving over into Haiti. And when you'd get into the city and you'd come to a stop sign or you'd come to a stoplight and you would stop. By the time you had stopped and gotten through the stoplight or the stop sign, several things had been stolen out of the back of your truck. So the only way you could go in is if you had an armed guard on the truck. This is the devastation and the corruption and the thing. And then we want to blame God for men. No, I tell you what, the blame is, the fault is sin. It's sin that steps outside of God. It's not God that causes a, 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 an adult to do horrible things to a child. It's not God that causes somebody to kill somebody else. That's not God. That's the effects and the results of sin. And sin, we are degenerate, we are dying, we are all aging right now, we are in decay from the time you're born. Your body grows, but it begins the process of decay. 
And that was from the moment that Eve ate of the fruit, Adam ate of the fruit. There was a breaking there, and there was a process from whatever that fruit was, which we don't know, there was a beginning of a process of fermentation set into the human body, and decay began. And so that is the reason why there are cellular, uh, uh, genetic uh, degenerations time and time again. That's not because of God. That's because of sin that has its effect upon, upon the human body, upon nature as a whole. What Jesus came to do, he said, is I came to redeem it. <laughs> I came to redeem what is decaying. And in fact, what is decaying right now under the effects of sin, he said, I am going to take and I am going, when it's dead and in the grave, I am going to resurrect it back into everlasting life. And some people can't wrap their mind around that because all they see is decay, decay, decay. There's no everlasting life. There's no hope. There's no glory. God is sovereign. Amen. But we have to be careful that we don't blame God. There's a book written by a man named Lee Strobel. If you haven't heard about it, it's been around for about 20 years. And it was called The Case for Christ. And then he wrote a follow-up called The Case for Faith. I would encourage anybody that hasn't read that to read that because it, it is, uh, he started out as an atheist and he wanted to do a journalistic investigation. And by the end or through the process, he himself becomes a convert because he looks at this and says, wow. This was not what I thought. And all the questions were, if God is a loving God, how could he send anybody to hell? Well, God's not sending anybody to hell. If anybody rejects God, they're doing it on their own. And hell is not a place that God prepared for us. He did prepare hell as a place, the Bible says, for those uh, demons, Satan, for Lucifer that rejected him. But what is hell? Hell is not the flames and the gnashing of teeth. What hell is, is hell is the absence of God. If the Bible says every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, if you take every good thing, if God is every good thing, and you suck that out, even, even bad people in the world are still enjoying the goodness of God. And they have some measure of morality. That sense of morality only comes from the innate creative process that God put inside of us. And so hell is the absence of God. You take away all that is good, all that is right, all that is holy, all that is merciful, all that is love. I'm, take, I'm talking about every iota of it. You take that away. You take the transcendent God that is choosing to come down and deal with us, when he cuts that off and we're left all by ourselves, that is hell. Because that is the point of no hope. That is the point of no future. That is the point of, the, of sorrow, of sorrows, of sorrows. So God didn't create us to go to hell. No, he didn't create us to go to hell. But he gave us the option to reject him. Because that's how much he thinks about us. That's how much he empowered us. So that's a good book. Another book is If Children Are Dying, Why, How Can God Exist, all that stuff. And he goes through all those things. It's a very good book. I would, I would encourage that. God is so sovereign that the Bible says he is able to subdue all things to himself. And he prophesies that in Philippians 3 and 21, who changed our vile bodies that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And that was Philippians talking about some 
powerful things there. God is sovereign. Let's go tonight now to the next thing, the fifth thing. And by the way, if you ever have any questions or any things like this, feel free to give them to me, email them to me, send them to me. Um, uh, I always have questions. So I've had many questions and gone back and back to these things and still don't understand everything. But let's go to the fifth thing. And the fifth thing is pretty incredible. God is absolutely omnipotent. He is absolutely all-powerful. And I don't know that we'll get much farther than this tonight. Amen. This series uh, is going to be, it's going to take us a little bit longer, and that's all right. We'll be gone next week, but we'll continue when we get back and pick it up. He is absolutely omnipotent, which means he is absolutely all-powerful. So I want you to catch this. There is nothing that God cannot do. He's all-powerful. He's absolutely all-powerful. So there's nothing he cannot do, and uh, he can do that which is impossible. Okay, You say, well, it's impossible to do this. Well, God can do it because he's God. This is an attribute of deity, a unique attribute of deity. No, no other entity would ever share this. In fact, anybody that would be omnipotent has to be God. So nothing is too hard for him. No power can hinder his working. And omnipotence speaks to the exceeding greatness of his power. So let's look at a few verses. Genesis 18 and 14 asks this. I love, we're going to look at Genesis and Job, the beginning of, of Scripture. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And they had an understanding of this. At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time, and Sarah shall have a son. This was when uh, the prophet or the angel was speaking to them and saying that, Abraham, you are going to have a child, and it's going to be a promised child. And the interesting thing we find about Scripture is we always know about Sarah's barrenness, um, but we don't always recognize Abraham's barrenness. The resurrection seed was not just in Sarah, but it was in Abraham as well. It was both of them. Neither one of them were able to have children. And Paul testifies to that. So having children was impossible. So the interesting thing and this is way off subject, but the interesting thing is that Ishmael, the first son that was by the handmaiden of Sarah, Hagar, who that was a miracle son. That was an interesting thing. It was a miracle son. <laughs> but it wasn't the miracle of miracles that had been promised, that had been prophesied. And so that didn't come until Isaac, where both of them, amen, neither one of them were able to have children and they resurrected that. The promise came. It was 25 years later. Sarah laughed. And, of course, but the son did come. And here was the thing he said. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You're beyond it. It's past. But God can do anything. And so we know God can do anything. Job 42 and 2, the first uh, part of Scripture that was penned or written, says, I know that thou can do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. So Job... There's so much theology in Job. Job is so rich with theology. First scripture, first book that we have of scripture that was written. And Job is testifying. I know that you can do everything. You can do everything. And then in Matthew chapter 19, 26, Jesus was talking to them about the uh, eye of the needle, uh, the camel going through the eye of the needle. And then he looks, and Jesus beheld unto them and said unto them, with men it is impossible but with God, all things are possible. It's possible. 
It's possible, folks. What a hope. Can I give you hope tonight and just say whatever it is you're dealing with in your life, it's possible that it could be gone tomorrow morning. Now, doesn't that just make you say, well, hey, maybe we can get this. Maybe we can do this. There's hope in there. That's what Jesus was saying. With God, all things are possible. We know that God, with God, all things are possible. Now, a few years ago, uh, I don't know how long ago, probably before my time, great philosopher thought he had God he had God cornered, the idea of God cornered, because he had a question that was going to perplex all men. And so the question was this. He said, well, if your God is omnipotent, if your God has all power, if your God can do anything, here was the question. Can your God make a rock so heavy, so big, that he cannot lift? And this was a question that atheists would propose, pro, present to Christians. And here was, here was the failure. It was a trick question. Because if you said, yes, he can make a rock so big that he can't lift it, then he's not all-powerful. If you said, no, he can't make a rock so big that he can't lift it, then he's not all-powerful because he can't make a rock so big that he cannot lift it. And so... He had genuine, aha, it was this aha kind of thing. Aha, he's got it there. God can't do it. And so people were stuck with thinking, wow, well, maybe God's not powerful. But nobody stopped to consider the third option, the third thing. And here's the thing. If God wants to, he can do it. Because that's how powerful he is. If he makes a rock so big he can't lift it, he can say, I'm going to make a rock so big I can't lift it. But if he wants to lift it, he can say, I'm going to lift that. <laughs> Why? Because he's God. He's not just powerful. He's absolutely omnipotent. And so God can do that which is absolutely impossible. Omnipotence is expressed by one special title that God claims, and it's used in Scripture. And here's the title that is exclusive to God. It's this, Almighty. Only God is Almighty. He is Almighty all by Himself. He's Almighty. God is Almighty. He's omnipotent. He's Almighty. If He has all might, all might, then, number one, there can't be three gods up in heaven. There's only one God. That's almighty, right? So there's not three gods up in heaven. There's one God up in heaven. And most, most, most all of Christian theologians now have to concede the point that, yes, there is only one God. But they still hold on to the traditions of men, and they try to reach back and, and be built on that foundation of archaic language and explain, well, there's one God, but... Three separate entities. Well, then, then there's not one that's almighty. There's only one God. And I'm going to help you understand that if I can in Jesus' name. That's my prayer. That's my will. I hope that you can have that revelation for yourself. But there's only one God. And that one God that's almighty, that's absolutely omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, that's absolutely immutable, he's absolutely transcendent. He's an entity above us and beyond us. And there's one entity by himself. And so God is almighty. Genesis 17 and 1. When Abraham was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, 
I am the almighty God. I am the almighty God. Does that sound like a council of people coming to you? Does that sound like a trio? No. I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Revelations 1 and 8. And here it is. The wonderful testimony that someday we're going to hear ring out as the church, as the saints of the Most High God, whom the Bible prophesies to him that overcometh, will I grant him to sit in my throne someday. The throne of God, by the way, is so big and so massive that the bride of Christ can fit in it. That's pretty incredible, folks. You think about that right there. You think your God's big. My God's bigger than your God. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and was and is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty. That's who He is. Revelations 19.6, and I heard as it was, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's where we get that word, omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. I don't know about you. We've sung that song. We've sung that phrase in our English song so many times, but what is that song really going to sound like? What is the melody of that phrase going to be like? I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get to (laughs) that day. And we hear an angelic host, voices singing. The Bible says it's so great. He didn't even know how to describe it. He says, it was as the voice of a great multitude, many waters, but it was mighty thunderings. It was just so magnificent saying, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What an awesome God that we serve. Amen. Even the idea that our great God can do anything doesn't really grasp the omnipotence of God. And so he went a step beyond. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, here's what he says. Now unto him that is able to do, and this always is meant to blow your mind, exceedingly, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. So maybe instead of us focusing on the fact or the question, can God build a rock so big that he cannot lift? Maybe we should understand the revelation that I can't think something too great that God cannot do. And put your needs in context of that revelation. That there's nothing in my life that is too big for God if I'll let God work inside of my life. There's no temptation There's no wound, there's no failure, there's no sin that you could commit or participate in that God cannot give you victory over, that God cannot give you peace from, that God cannot give you joy, that God... I may talk about this a little bit Sunday morning. The Bible says He gives us peace, not just peace, but I'm going to give you peace that passes understanding. You're not even going to understand this kind of peace. You're just going to be walking around saying, I don't know why, but I got peace in my life. I don't know how, but I've got peace in my life. Come on, has anybody got that testimony? I shouldn't be where I am today, but I'm thankful. You know why? Because he's an absolute God. He's a transcendent God. And when he does something, he doesn't just do it. He does it beyond, over, and above what you could ever imagine. Joy unspeakable. I can't even describe to you 
how awesome the joy is. Folks, and if we feel joy, if we can experience joy unspeakable and peace that passes understanding on this earth, what do you think it's going to be like when we've shed this, this finite uh, body and we have taken on this mortal, Paul says, shall take on immortality. I don't know about you, but I want to play games and miss it, folks. If there's anything that we ought to learn, amen, is that tomorrow is not promised to us. We don't even know what's going to come tomorrow. Tomorrow, this whole area could flood. There could be an earthquake. California could fall apart. The U.S. could split up. What all the scientists and doomsday people are saying, we have no clue. But I tell you one thing is that I don't want to miss everlasting life with the Lord. Amen. So God is absolutely omnipotent. Amen. I want to get into uh, the next topic that we're going to talk about, but I, I'm not going to jump into it uh, tonight. The next attribute that we're going to talk about is God is absolutely omnipresent. And the next one is going to be very critical because we do not ascribe to the doctrine of the Trinity as uh, most always interpreted, as always presented. There was... Uh, a council in 325 A.D. of church leaders that came together. There was a lot of uh, politics at stake when uh, when Constantine and 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 Rome and all that were couldn't defeat the church, and so they decided they'd absorb absorb the church and they'd become the church, but they could not accept a monotheistic god because they were they served they served so many gods. Um, and so they needed more than one. And so they looked at Scripture and they found a way by which they could divide God up to make it more palatable to culture. And so Christianity became the thing of the day. And sadly, Christianity became a label that was applied to people. And men would go in and conquer a town and say, okay, this town's Christian. We're going to do this, this, and this. And they would do it. Folks, that's not how you convert people. And so we have what was the Dark Ages, and we have a whole lot of horrific things that were done in the name of religion. Most of European history was done in the name of religion. And uh, Brother Duff, you probably are more well-versed than any of us in here. It was done in the name of religion, but it was all on a false base. It wasn't really what God had established. And so, but one thing that people don't know was there was nine different interpretations of the Trinity when they came out. And one of the interpretations that they permitted for a short while to be acceptable was the oneness position, which we would take, we would ascribe to very strongly. Not just us ascribing to, it's what the Bible declares, that there is only one God, absolute one God. And so the omnipresence really deals with it because we talk a lot about the Holy Ghost and we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is God's relative presence to us. And I want to explain that to, to us if I can. Because God is absolute. He's transcendent. God is a spirit. He's beyond us. We are finite. We are mortal beings. How can we know a transcendent God? And so God had to have some kind of relation. He had to have something that was relative to who we are. And so the Holy Spirit becomes that presence of God. And we'll talk about that. That we can feel, that we can know, that can indwell inside of us, that can live and operate inside of us. That doesn't change who God is, because God does not change. God does not change. Just like Jesus Christ is the expressed image of the person, it is the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelt. 
And we're going to look at that because every single one of these attributes are given to Jesus Christ. And we know about these unique attributes in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the sense that He is he's the offspring. He is the Son of God. Because God is transcendent. No man hath seen God. We can't see God. We can't know God. But God made Himself knowable to us. So He manifests Himself to us. So this Jesus is the manifest of the transcendent God that existed from eternity before the beginning. Does that make sense? I'm trying to describe this so you know. So we can't know that God eternal before the beginning except that He make Himself knowable to us and He did through the person, the manifestation of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that because of Scripture. This is what Scripture explains. So what people looked at, they says, aha, we see, we see difference. We see a Father and we see a Son and we see a Holy Spirit. So they believed when they got to heaven that there was a Father, there was a Son, and there was a Holy Spirit. And of course... That's wrong. When you get to heaven, most theologians will all agree, you're not going to see three different people. The Bible doesn't teach that. If they still teach that and believe that, and some people do, they don't believe the Bible is the final world word, they believe that it's evolving and that you can add to it. And that's a very dangerous theology to get into because you get to that, and well, people can say Mickey Mouse is the next, and, and you end up with whatever. No, that's why when Jesus come, he established it. He said, the word is forever settled, don't add one bit to it, and don't take away one bit to it. And when John wrote the final book of our Bible in Revelation, what was the witness of Jesus Christ? It was this, that he who adds to or he who takes away is going to be a curse. So you can't add another book to that. So that's why we would reject Mormonism, because Joseph Smith comes along and says, hey, I've got this whole other book. That's why we would reject anything that Muhammad would write in his visions because number one, he did not see, he saw Jesus as a man. He didn't see Jesus as the manifestation of the transcendent God. He comes 700 years afterwards. By the way, his, this is very hard to find, but Muhammad did not accept Christianity. He knew that Abraham was the father, but he had a thing with the Jews because of the way they had disarmed them. But he rejected Christianity because Christianity was tritheistic. And he said, no, the God of Abraham was one God. So we rejected a false truth, and he goes off into this other kind of thing because he didn't understand the interpretation. Jesus was a Jew, so he, could, he couldn't accept that kind of thing, and so he embraced, he embraced his own kind of a thing. Amen. But no, that's why we can't accept that, because we know what the Bible says. It's forever settled, and it all crashes down if we don't follow that. So we're going to talk about that in the omnipresence of God. There's not three up in heaven. There's a transcendent God that we don't know that made himself known to us in the manifestation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, when I ascend, because he has to play out this whole role, this whole scene, the drama of redemption that's playing out, he says, I will not leave you comfortless. He tells his disciples this. You may not see me physically standing before you, but I will send my comforter, which is the promise of the Father. Who's the Father? It's not some other person. It's God transcendent that's above, that's beyond. Amen? You catch me here? And, and he is going to be with you, and he'll lead you, and he'll guide you into all truth. So we don't have a different spirit than Jesus had. No, we have the spirit of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ inside of us. We have the spirit of God. You can't say, well, I got the spirit of the Father, but I don't have the spirit of Jesus. Or you can't say, well, I have the spirit of the Holy, 
Holy Spirit, but I, but I don't have the Spirit of the Father. No, 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 you can't say that. Because it's one entity. You can't separate that. You can't destroy that. And that is foundational, folks, to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's why this revelation has so much. This will impact you so much. It'll change your life. And that's why when he asked him, he said, who do you say that I am? He was asking him, who do you say that I am? Are you saying I'm just another rabbi? Are you saying I'm just another prophet? No. And, and Peter stood up and he said, thou art the Christ. The son of the living God. And so he was ascribing to him every, he was ascribing to him hundreds of years, thousands of years of prophecy. And he was saying, you are it. You're the all-knowing God. You're the one that has power. You're the one that has power over the waves. You're the one that knows everything. You know my comings and my goings. You're eternal. You're everlasting. You're the one that is everywhere present. I can't escape you. <laughs> And his resurrected body, there they are in the room talking, and Jesus walks through the wall. <laughs> Hello. Here he is. Here he is. Here he is. Wow, what an awesome God. And we're going to talk about that because it's really cool because on the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching a sermon, and he referenced where he was preaching at the upper room. He referenced the tomb of David and the super awesome significance about that tomb. He was preaching to the Jews and he was invoking. There was no wonder in their mind. They stood there and they were like, oh, you got to be kidding. What, what must we do? And no wonder there was a revival that broke out. We skip a lot of times, unfortunately, straight to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And we don't go through Acts chapter 2 verses 16 through 36. And that was the sermon that Peter preached. And he closes his sermon with this. And let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that that same Jesus is now made both Lord and Christ. You know what he was preaching? It was the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was the revelation of the mighty God in Christ. It was the oneness of God. And when they got that revelation, they said, hey, what must we do to be saved? I believe we ought to baptize people in Jesus' name. I believe we ought to pray them through the Holy Ghost. But we do them a disservice when we don't teach them who Jesus is. And they're walking around and wondering. The Bible says that upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What was it built upon? It was built upon the true identity of Jesus Christ. Would you stand together with me tonight? Oh, do you love the word of the Lord? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the word of the Lord. I'm thankful for the presence of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you tonight.